All right, good morning, everyone. We're going on the record on case CR 22211624, State of Idaho versus Lori Noreen Vallow. The defendant is here present, appearing with counsel, Mr. Archibald and Mr. Thomas. The state's here represented by Rob Wood and Lindsay Blake. Court would note there's a courtroom conduct order in effect that prohibits the video or audio recording of any of these proceedings for this hearing today. I'd ask all in attendance to please comply with that order. Before the court this morning is a motion that was filed by the defendant, a motion for new trial filed on May 25th. The state filed a response to the motion on June 7th. The courts reviewed the pleadings and I'm prepared to hear argument on the motion. Who is going to be making argument on behalf of the defendant today? I will, Your Honor. All right, Mr. Archibald, uh, if you're prepared, you can make your argument at this time and then I'll hear the response from the state. May I remain seated? Yes, you may, Mr. Archibald. A motion for new trial was filed uh, due to, to what we believe were errors uh, during the trial. The, the Idaho statute that governs this motion is very specific on what we can bring up. Uh, our client still preserves uh, all of her other appellate rights other than uh, what's contained in this motion for new trial. So because of the conviction, uh, there will be a sentencing uh, unless this court grants uh, a new trial. If there is a new trial granted, we understand there's uh, a trial set for Chad Daybill set for next year. And I would anticipate if the court grants this motion that the state would then seek to combine the cases once more. So with that in mind, uh, the reasons that we're asking for a new trial uh, is set forth in the motion. And I'll just be brief as I, uh, as I argue the, the three issues that we brought up in our motion. The uh, court misdirected the jury in a matter of law as it related to the jury instructions on conspiracy. And I don't uh, fault the court as much as I do the government for the way that this information, this indictment was filed. It was pretty clear from the indictment uh, that the, the government started out with presenting this to the grand jury that the uh, conspiracy involved at least five people, Chad Daybell, Lori Vallow, Alex Cox, and other co-conspirators, both known and unknown. The, the grand jury did not invent that language. That is language uh, drafted, uh, composed by the government. So when the government presented this case to the grand jury, uh, the grand jury signed off on it. And so uh, when my client was arraigned, she was given a copy of the indictment. She can read, uh, she can understand that the conspiracy that is alleged against her was consisting of five people. The court then read this language to prospective jurors uh, during the jury voir dire process, during that two-week process. And then the court uh, 
read this language again to the jury at the start of the trial, start of our, so during the seven weeks that we were in Boise, the two weeks of jury selection and the five weeks of trial, the jury knew this language. They knew that because the court had read it to them. The court had read this language to them as it was drafted by the government. And so for the court and the government to then, at the end of our seven weeks in Boise, to just all of a sudden say, just kidding, it's not really five people, it's two or more because of the definition of conspiracy. And so this was a mistake created by the government that the court was obligated to read the indictment to the jury. And then the jury instructions defined conspiracy differently than how the government defined it. And so the state is relying on the Yang case saying, well, you attorneys know what a conspiracy is, so no harm, no foul. So you attorneys know the definition of conspiracy, so it's no big deal. And I think the Yang case is bad law. The Idaho Court of Appeals, I think, messed up on that. And I think that's one issue that the Idaho Supreme Court will visit on this case, is where the government defines it. The grand jury endorses a conspiracy of five, at least five people. Is it then okay to say, well, you attorneys know what a conspiracy is, so no big deal. I think it is a big deal, and I think that that issue is cause for a new trial. Secondly, I think the court misdirected the jury in a matter of law as it related to the amended indictment. Again, after our seven weeks in Boise, the state and the government moved to amend their indictment for a quote-unquote clerical error. And as we noted at the time with our objections, this was not a clerical error. There were five prosecutors working on this case from day one. All five prosecutors submitted this indictment to the grand jury. The grand jury signed off on it. And then at the end of the state's case, they moved to amend their indictment. The defense objected, and so we believe that this mistake from the way that the government drafted their indictment was prejudicial and should not have been allowed. I'll remind the court that the defense tried to get this indictment sent back to the grand jury for errors and clarification. The government objected repeatedly and said everything's fine. Everything that the grand jury did was just fine. Everything the grand jury did was perfect. And so we attempted to have this indictment sent back to the grand jury, and it was rebuffed at least twice. And so we believe that the court abused its discretion in allowing this case to go forward. Thank you. Thank you, counsel. Case is submitted. Counsel are excused.
And so then the government gets the opportunity to amend the indictment after our seven-week trial, and the court grants it. And we believe that was error and uh, constitutes a reason for a new trial. Our third point for uh, asking for a new trial is based upon a news interview that a juror uh, gave to a reporter. I quoted the uh, part of the conversation in my motion, and it's not necessary that I present a copy of that to the court, a verbatim copy, because the state agreed with what was said. So the state in their responsive brief did not say, no, sir, that's not what he said. They agreed that that's what he said and then added an additional interview in their responsive pleading. And so that's based upon uh, the reporter and the juror's statements. And I will note that they, both the juror and the reporter, were very respectful of the process, very respectful to the court, uh, to the attorneys, uh, to all of the court staff. Uh, they, uh, this juror indicated, and the reporter indicated the, uh, the respect towards the, uh, the process from the start to the finish. So I'm not uh, criticizing either of them for, for anything derogatory that they said. What I am indicating is that our 404B objections uh, are, they're tough. They're even tough for third-year law students to grasp. This uh, evidentiary issue of allowing in bad acts not to prove someone's a bad person, but for some other reason. That is really difficult. It's difficult for law students. It's difficult for lawyers. It's difficult for courts. And so uh, this is an, uh, an appealable issue uh, on the 404B. And this conversation between the juror and the reporter just demonstrates some of that confusion because on one hand, the juror says it was very clear. We followed the instructions. It was very clear. Um, and But then makes an, an erroneous statement. The Arizona evidence and testimony is only for demonstrative purposes. And, and we know that that's not true, that the Arizona evidence and testimony was not for demonstrative purposes. That was the 404B evidence to show some other reason other than the defendant is a bad person. And so what was demonstrative was the government's summaries from the FBI and other law enforcement. So those two issues got confused. So the juror on one hand says it was clear, it was clear we followed, but yet we know that it was confusing because he defined it wrongly. And um, and so, uh, based upon our motion for new trial, <clears throat> if the court grants the motion, if she, uh, then we'll again attack 404B evidence. 
Some courts just stay a mile away from this character evidence because of the traps that it sets. And I think this is a, a good indication as to why a court would want to stay away from 404B evidence because it does tend to confuse the jury. And so um, with those issues, Your Honor, if the court uh, uh, denies this motion for new trial, of course we'll proceed to sentencing and this, these issues can be taken up on appeal. If the court grants this motion for new trial, we would expect to that our cases would be combined with uh, Chad Dayville's trial next year. And so the, um, on behalf of my client, we never asked for a separation of the trials. Uh, it was Chad Daybell who asked for his own trial. And so that's why we're okay if the court grants this motion. We're okay with having our case uh, reset at the same time as Mr. Daybell's trial. That's all I have. All right. Thank you for the uh, argument on your motion, Mr. Archibald. Who's going to be making the argument on behalf of the state? I will be, Your Honor. Okay, Ms. Blake, if you'd like to present the state's argument, you may. Thank you, Your Honor. First off, the state does recognize that under Idaho Criminal Rule 34A, the court may grant a new trial on any ground permitted by statute. In Idaho Criminal Rule 34, the statute they are specifically referring to is Idaho Code 19-2406. Within that statute, there are seven grounds for which, uh, based on which a defendant may ask for a new trial. The defense in this matter has focused on three of those seven grounds. I will indicate that the Idaho Supreme Court has made clear in State v. Cantu, 129 Idaho 673, that Idaho Criminal Rule 34 does not create any independent grounds for a new trial. It simply is what makes it permissible if one of those seven grounds are met. The Idaho law is very clear that one of those seven grounds have to be met. It can't be for another reason. In this particular case, the defense has focused on subsections two, five, and six. Two being that the jury considered evidence not introduced at trial. Five being the court misdirected the jury in a matter of law or erred in deciding a question of law during the trial, and six being the verdict is contrary to law or evidence. The first one uh, that the defense argued and we focused on deals with the modification to the jury instructions from what was in the indictment to include the term and slash or rather than the and that was originally there dealing with the charges of conspiracy. A criminal conspiracy is defined by Idaho Code 18-1701 as two or more persons combining or conspiring to commit any crime or offense prescribed by the laws of the state of Idaho and one or more of such person doing an act to affect the object uh, of the combination or conspiracy. Pursuant to the plain language of the statute, the defendant was on notice that she was accused of conspiring with one or more persons to commit the underlying offenses contained within those charges as well. This matter has already been decided by the Idaho 
appellate court in 2020, so it's a recent decision. The defense cited that and indicated that the court in Yang was wrong. However, the state disagrees with that. It was the um, exact same modification that was made in the Yang case. In Yang, the defendant argued there was a fatal variance between the elements instruction for conspiracy to traffic in marijuana and the second amended information charging him with that offense. And the citation to Yang is 167 Idaho 944. The court determined that a variance between a charging instrument and a jury instruction necessitates reversal only when it deprives the defendant of the right to fair notice or leaves him or her open to the risk of double jeopardy. As indicated, the second amended complaint in Yang contained each, there were three co-defendants laid out or co-conspirators, commas between each one, and before the last one, the word and. What the instruction was modified to was, again, the three co-conspirators, commas between each, and the inclusion of the and slash or. That's the exact modification that was made in this case. Yang produced the exact same argument as what the defense is producing here. The district court originally rejected the argument, concluding the jury instruction could list the co-conspirators' identities disjunctively when the charging document, and li document listed them conjunctively without creating a fatal variance. The Idaho Court of Appeals also found use of and or in instruction 18 did not create a fatal variance. Idaho Code Section 18-1701 requires that a defendant have an agreement to commit a crime with only one other person to form a conspiracy, not the number of individuals pled in the charging document. They cited to State v. Goggins or said see State v. Goggins. That's 157 Idaho 1. They went on to say, additionally, the identity of a co-conspirator is not a necessary element of the crime of conspiracy. And again, going back to State v. Goggin, as well as United States v. Ray, which is 899 F3D 852. The court went on to look to multiple other jurisdictions that have looked at a very similar issue, and it is um, consistent that the courts have found whether pled conjunctively or disjunctively for purposes of a conspiracy is not a fatal variance. It's not a fatal error because it is not part of the conspiracy charge to prove the exact number of co-conspirators, nor is it an element to prove the identities. So I think uh, the argument made by the defense is not quite on par with what the Yang court was actually looking at and finding. It's not just whether or not the defendant was on notice and whether or not defense counsel knows the definition of conspiracy. It's that those particular things are not even a required element to be proven within a conspiracy charge. And the fact that the defense was on notice that it was a conspiracy and the plain definition of a conspiracy being two or more persons. Uh, so the state would argue that that is not a ground to grant a new trial. The next one that we look to is whether or not uh, the jury was misdirected in a matter of law or if there was an error in decision of any question of law during the trial. And specifically, the defense has focused on an amendment that was made to the indictment, amending the subsection regarding the charges involving grand theft. So there were two charges that were conspiracy to commit murder 
and grand theft, and then there was the separate grand theft charge. In those charges, they were counts one, three, and seven of the indictment. The modification made, it was a clerical error, and the reason I say it's a clerical error and it's pretty clear is when you look at charge number seven or count number seven within the indictment, the language charged there comports with grand theft by deceit or by deception. The indictment specifically included the language, quote, by deceit and with intent to deprive, end quote. That's reflective of the language contained within Idaho Code 18-24032A. Originally, it had indicated 4A within that grand theft. If anything, that would have actually made the burden of proof higher on the state because under subsection 4A, a person, there does not have to be any intent to, uh, excuse me, there doesn't have to be any deceit. Uh, there's no requirement that the state prove that it was done by deception. Under 1824034A, a person commits theft when he knowingly receives, retains, conceals, obtains control over, possesses, or disposes of stolen property, knowing the property to have been stolen, or under such circumstances as would reasonably induce him to believe the property was stolen, and intends to deprive the owner permanently of the use or benefit of the property. 24032A provides that theft includes a wrongful taking, obtaining, or withholding of another's property with the intent prescribed in subsection 1 of this section committed in any of the following ways. And then A is by deception, obtains or exerts control over property of the owner. The amendment in this case was simply to correct the subsection within the same statute charging the same offense of grand theft. The defendant incorrectly indicates the modification changed the intent from an intent to deprive to an intent to deceive. Under both subsections, the intent is always to deprive. Under subsection 2A, there's simply the heightened burden that it be done um, through deception, that the theft is committed through the use of deception. Further, the Idaho Supreme Court has looked at the modifications of indictments in State v. Bolas, 93 Idaho 749, in that particular case, a modification was made changing Idaho Code 18-1402 to 18-1401. The court found the indictment in the case clearly, excuse me, the indictment in this case sets out clearly and in language easily understood the facts sufficient to establish the jurisdiction of the district court and the act or omission constituting the offense of which Bullis was convicted. The change in code sections from Idaho Code 18-1402, which describes the difference between burglary in the first degree and burglary in the second degree, to 18-1401, which defines the crime of burglary in general, did not have the effect of changing the offense with which appellant was charged. They went on to find no substantial rights of the appellant had been affected by the amendment because the unamended indictment was initially substantially sufficient to meet the requirements. Similarly, in State v. Dunn, that's 60 Idaho 568, the Idaho Supreme Court found the amendment did not charge a new or different offense and it made no substantial difference as to the charge of obtaining money by false pretenses, whether the indictment stated appellant received the fictitious contract or executed it. 
because the balance of the indictment both before and after the amended impliedly charged defendant, excuse me, charged appellant with having fabricated the contract. So similarly in this case, the amendment still charges the defendant with grand theft. There's been no change in the underlying charge or offense. And additionally, State v. Severson is another case, and it was decided by the Idaho Supreme Court. And is 147 Idaho 694. In that case, they also indicate an indictment may be amended at any time before the prosecution rests without being returned to the grand jury so long as doing so does not prejudice the defendant's substantial rights or charge the defendant with a new offense. An amendment that merely alleges additional means by which the defendant may have committed the crime is permissible if it does not prejudice the defendant. Factors to determine whether the defendant was prejudiced include whether the amendment alleging the additional facts took the defendant by surprise, impaired the defendant's ability to adequately prepare his defense, necessitated extensive further preparation by the defendant, or subjected him to double jeopardy. They went on to find the defendant was not charged with a new offense since the amendment merely alleged an alternative way Severson might have committed the crime. It did not prejudice any of his substantial rights. In this case, similarly, the defendant was always on notice as to what the state was charging. As indicated, the language that would be contained within subsection 2A was always contained in the indictment. It simply referenced 4A instead of 2A. The defendant was always on notice that she was being charged with grand theft, which always includes an intent to deprive another of rightful ownership to property. So again, on that ground, the state would argue that the defense fails to meet any burden or that there would be any grounds for a new trial given that. The amendment was merely an alternative way and an alternative subsection within the crime of grand theft, not a new charge. And further, two of those were contained within a charge that was actually conspiracy to commit the grand theft. And finally, regarding the last argument, I think it appeared to be a combination of several of these, and specifically looking at whether or not the jury considered evidence not introduced. And also, I think the defense was referencing the verdict may be contrary to law or evidence within this. First and foremost, post-trial evidence as to juror post-conviction statements is inadmissible and prohibited under Idaho Rule of Evidence 606. Idaho Rule of Evidence 606B1 provides prohibited testimony or other evidence. During an inquiry into the validity of a verdict or indictment, a juror may not testify about any statement made or incident that occurred during the jury's deliberations. The effect of anything on that juror's or another juror's vote or any juror's mental processes concerning the verdict or indictment. The court may not receive a juror's affidavit or evidence of a juror's statement on these matters. There are some exceptions to the exclusion of juror testimony outlined under Idaho Rule of Evidence 606B2. However, none of those would support the efforts being made by defense today. So the state's position, first and foremost, is any statements purported to be made by juror number eight should not be considered by this court. The state would argue, however, if the court were to consider those statements purported by the defendant to support her attack 
on the court's instructions and evidentiary rulings, the defendant's motion would still fell on its face. As provided by the defendant in her motion for a new trial, Juror 8 stated, quote, we didn't consider this during our deliberations because it was clear to us the instructions were clear. Arizona evidence and testimony is only for demonstrative purposes. And I understand now defense is trying to argue that they conflated that with demonstrative evidence. However, I think that's simply trying to um, determine what exactly the juror meant by that. A follow-up interview was conducted with that same juror to where he responded, quote, I personally did not, uh, or excuse me, he was asked um, regarding whether, whether he found the jury instructions to be confusing. He responded, quote, I personally did not. I thought the judge gave us instructions throughout the trial, throughout the process, multiple times, and those instructions never changed in my opinion, even up to the very last date, up to the moment before we were released to go deliberate, the instructions were clear. There is no evidence to support that there was any confusion regarding the 404B evidence and the demonstrative evidence. Juror 8 is unequivocal in stating the jury instructions were clear and the 404B evidence was introduced and that 404B evidence uh, which was introduced was not considered for any purpose other than compliance with the instructions provided by the court. There is nothing to indicate that the juror did not follow the instructions provided by the court. And specifically, this court provided very clear instructions regarding 404B, which was provided under jury instruction 14. The court also advised the jurors every time there was 404B evidence being introduced that there would be a limiting instruction. The court then went on in jury instruction number 15 to specifically identify which exhibits were for demonstrative purposes, and those exhibits were not the 404B. So the juror saying repeatedly, the instructions were clear, the instructions were clear, those are two of the instructions that the juror is referencing by indicating that. As far as the review of any or consideration of any evidence that was not presented to the jurors, the defense purported that a statement made by that juror referencing some camera footage, body cam footage of Charles that was not introduced at trial must have been considered by the juror. Again, however, in that follow-up interview, the juror specified he did not observe anything of that nature until after he had been released from jury duty and had been, uh, and he did not view that until the Sunday after the verdict was delivered on Friday. In addition, outside of Idaho Rule of Evidence 606, um, Idaho, the Idaho Supreme Court in State v. Wrigley, that was 7 Idaho 292, has determined that the Supreme Court had previously determined and Wrigley reiterated the impeachment of the verdict by affidavits made after verdict rendered has never been recognized by this court. And that appears to be supportive of Idaho Rule of Evidence 606. The same analysis and reasoning apply. For all of these reasons, the state also it's our position that the defendant has not met any burden or has failed to demonstrate that there are grounds for a new trial based on that allegation, which appears to encompass 2, 5, and 6 to some extent. So for the grounds listed by the defendant in the motion, the state would ask based on those grounds, this court deny the motion. The state would also indicate and provided within the brief, uh, brief reference to the other four grounds that could be 
reason to grant a new trial. The state also believes there is no evidence to support that those would be grounds for a new trial. The state makes that reference since this court could independently determine that there would be a new ground for trial outside of those argued by the defendant. The state does not believe any of those seven grounds are applicable in this case. And for all of those reasons, would ask that this court simply deny the defendant's motion. All right. Thank you, Ms. Blake, for your argument. Uh, Mr. Archibald, before we conclude, do you have any rebuttal argument? Or just uh, briefly on the, uh, on the language of the indictment, uh, to rebut what the, the state has argued, the, the court read the indictment to my client when this case started. Uh, the indictment language is the, that a conspiracy is five people. And so my client was put on notice that a conspiracy is five people. My client was not read the jury instructions when she was arraigned. Uh, the jury, when they were summoned to appear in Boise, when the case started, they were put on notice because uh, the court read the indictment to them. They were put on notice that a conspiracy is five people. And not until seven weeks later was the jury and my client told that, just kidding, uh, a conspiracy is really two or more. So uh, that's why this Yang case out of the Court of Appeals is wrongly decided, and it focuses on the wrong issue. The issue here is what was my client advised of? And the Yang court says, well, defense counsel knows what a conspiracy is, so... So that's why it's not a big deal. But, but are we, are defense lawyers supposed to tell our clients, hey, just ignore what the judge just read to you. Just ignore what the grand jury indicted you on. The judge just read to you that you're in a, you're accused of being in a conspiracy of five people. Ignore that. Ignore what the grand jury said. Ignore what the judge said. Listen to me, your defense lawyer. A conspiracy is really two or more people. And that's why this Yang decision is totally wrong. Because my client was put on notice by the judge, by the grand jury, as to what she was accused of. And that's why this uh, justifies a new trial. All right. Thank you, Mr. Archibald. Uh, Council, I'm going to briefly go back through your arguments as well as a few of the citations. I'll be prepared to make a ruling on the motion this morning, but we'll take a break first so I can get my thoughts together. So uh, we will plan on reconvening here in about 20 minutes. All right. All right, we are back on the record on KCR 22211624, State of Idaho versus Lori Noreen Vallow. The court took a recess after considering the arguments that were submitted by both the defendant in its motion for a new trial and also considering the response from the state and the state's objection that was filed as well. So the court is prepared to make a ruling on the motion for a new trial at this time. 
and I will walk through uh, those issues that were raised in the motion in turn. So the first motion uh, rationale is under subsection 1, a argument that the court misdirected the jury in, as a matter of law as it relates to the jury instruction on conspiracy. And the argument being that the language in the indictment and amended indictment talked about uh, a conspiracy said between uh, the defendant, Chad Daybell, Alex Cox, and others, which the defense argues would need a minimum of five people to be complicit in the conspiracy. The state, uh, upon request, and the court considered it and heard argument on it at the time, I'll note, on our jury instruction conference, requested a jury instruction that had and or language which could then allow the jurors to consider a conspiracy of two or more people. So the argument is that uh, would be grounds for a new trial. I would note at the outset the grounds for a new trial, as mentioned by both sides, uh, must be found under a statute or rule. Rule 34 of the Idaho Criminal Rules allows for a motion for new trial, and the statute relied on here is Idaho Code 19-2406, which sets out um, seven different subsections of what may be used to justify a new trial. So going back to the conspiracy question then and whether or not that was a misinstruction as to the matter, as a matter of law, um, the court has reviewed the citations uh, and authority. There is the State versus Yang case, which I do agree is substantially similar in its analysis of this issue of and or and one of the quotations from the State versus Yang case, and that's the 167 Idaho 944, is whether or not uh, alleged co-conspirators were listed conjunctively or disjunctively in the jury instructions was immaterial. There was other language in there indicating whether or not that, number one, constitutes a variance, and the standard then after you find if there is a variance, does the variance become what the law calls fatal? And you would have to make a finding that it would somehow violate due process. So that's the standard the courts looked at. There's also a very recent case called State versus Anderson, which came out on June 7th of 2023. So currently it just has a Westlaw citation of uh, 2023 Westlaw 3855252. And the Anderson case talks about this issue as well. And one of the citations out of that is says, quote, the facts set out in the charging document therefore put Anderson on notice that both theories of assault were at issue. While there was a variance between the charging document and the jury instruction, we held hold that the variance was not fatal. Um, a, a few things on this as it relates to the conspiracy charge. If there was a variance between that and instead of and or as differing between the jury instruction and the indictment, 
the court would not find in this case that there's been a showing that it would violate due process. In order to violate due process and therefore become a fatal variance, first you have to determine there was the variance, and second, is a reversal necessary because it deprives the defendant of fair notice or leaves them open to the risk of double jeopardy. A variance between a charging document and instructions is fatal if it hindered the defense in the preparation or presentation of their defense. A couple of things that were noted by the state is Idaho Code 18-1701 is the defined crime under which the charge took place of conspiracy, and that plainly states that a conspiracy involves two or more persons. So there wasn't an instruction that went contrary to what the statute says. Also, in looking back at that new Anderson case as well, the question is whether or not in the conspiracy the defendant had notice of the facts that were underlying the conspiracy. And the court would note, importantly here, the overt acts in the indictment did not change. There wasn't an amendment to the indictment that allowed for any additional overt acts that were not originally included in there, and those overt acts in general talked about the named co-conspirators, meaning the defendant, Chad Daybell and Alex Cox, in the overt act language. When the court considers overall whether or not that could have resulted in any hindrance of the defense in preparation or presentation of the defense, I don't find that there's been a showing that if there was a variance here that it was a fatal variance as defined in that case law, and in particular also, again, the State v. Yang case that's been cited by the State. And so upon consideration of that, the court does determine that the first grounds for the new trial of an allegation that the jury was impermissibly instructed on conspiracy, I'll deny that motion on that ground. The second issue raised is whether or not the court misdirected the jury as a matter of law as it related to the amended indictment. On this argument, the procedural history was that the State moved at the close of its case to change and amend the indictment in this case of what it calls a clerical error. There was a description of charges in the indictment relating to grand theft charges. The indictment spelled out that it was grand theft by deception. In other words, it had the language in there, grand theft by deception. However, the 2403 subsection did not comport with the language. So it was a grand theft citation, but it was not the specific grand theft by deception citation. When the State moved to amend the indictment at trial, the court heard argument on this specific issue and made a ruling permitting under Idaho Criminal Rule 7E the amendment of the indictment. And I'll incorporate the findings I made at the time of trial when I allowed for the indictment to be amended in this decision, finding that it was a permissible amendment 
given the time and the nature of the amendment. Also, as it relates to the argument now that that was a misinstruction uh, or an error for the court to allow that to be amended, the states argued that the amendment, in fact, increased their burden to use a more specific type of theft, which has additional elements on the theft by deception. And the court would agree with that argument that it did not uh, lessen any burden the state had. And where the language always had put the defendant on notice, the court finds that by simply changing the number and letter of the code site, which the jury, of course, would not have access to, that it did not in any way um, rise to the level of one of the uh, subsections of 192406 uh, to allow for a new trial on that argument as well. So on that second argument then made by the uh, defense as to a new trial, the court will deny the motion for a new trial there. That brings us then to the third grounds for a new trial, which involves uh, allegations that a juror interview has revealed that the jurors perhaps were not properly instructed or that the jurors were somehow uh, didn't deliberate correctly based on the court's instructions and that's been a grounds for the court to an argument for a new trial. Uh, I've considered that and first as it as it came out in the motion, um, I did have a concern that it was just a motion where, in argument, the defense says, well, there's been an interview of this juror, and here's what the juror said in the interview, and it's not submitted to the court through any declaration or affidavit, so I didn't really consider that to be evidence in the first place, the way it came to the court. The defense has argued, well, the state's agreed that that's what was said in this interview. Um, I'll note that I don't go in and independently listen to or review the interviews unless I have a reason within the rules to do that, and I've not done that in this case. So um, first, I don't necessarily really have any statements from that juror before me. Um, the rule of evidence 606 does go directly to this issue, and that rule is called uh, juror's competency as a witness. Uh, the state notes that subsection 1 of Rule of Evidence uh, 606B1 prohibits the court from considering these statements. It says, the court may not receive a juror's affidavit or evidence of a juror's statement on these matters and that matters being the jury's deliberations, the effect of anything on that juror's vote or the juror's mental process concerning the verdict or indictment. So as it relates to what's been alleged here, I mean, at the outset, I just think it's it's pretty clear that there's a strong policy that jurors' deliberations are sacrosanct and we don't interfere with the manner in which they deliberate, nor do we go in and require them to start 
answering questions in any proceeding about how and why they reached a verdict. I would note, of course, there are the exceptions then under Part 2 that occasionally, under narrow circumstances, that can be permitted. In this case, if I look at those exceptions, number one, it's under 2A, was there any extraneous, so going back, if there was to the court submitted some sort of a declaration or affidavit from a juror stating, hey, here's what happened, and it falls within one of these exceptions, then the court could consider whether or not the verdict should be set aside and a new trial granted. The first exception is whether or not there's any extraneous prejudicial information improperly brought to the jury's attention. And the court would note during the course of the trial, the jurors each day signed a daily affirmation in a declaration and submitted those to the court that they had not received any improper prejudicial information because they were instructed they were prohibited from looking anything up in the case, and they affirmed to the court each day, all 12 of the jurors on every single day, that they hadn't done that. So that's the evidence the court has before it in terms of what is in the record. Part B is whether any outside influence was improperly brought to bear on any juror. There was never any contact made to the court by any juror about any outside influence. And again, that daily affidavit also I think probably would cover that issue. So I don't consider there's any record that that occurred. There's no indication that the jury determined any issue by resort to chance, so I don't have any specific information that they drew straws or flipped a coin or something else decided by lot any of their convictions in this case. And then any allegation that there was a mistake made in entering the verdict on the verdict form. And I'd note there with the last exception also, the jury came back with the verdict form. The jury was polled after the verdict. The jury independently, each one of the 12 confirmed their verdict. And so the record before the court doesn't show any of those exceptions would apply. If I do look at the allegation that a juror conflated demonstrative versus 404B evidence, again, looking at whether or not that falls within an exception under Rule 606, number one, I don't have before me any declaration of the juror or other evidence I would consider that the juror, in fact, ran afoul of one of those exceptions, even if the juror had misidentified or misunderstood even the 404B versus demonstrative exhibits. The court would also note that it had a specific jury instruction, which was jury instruction number 15, about demonstrative exhibits that identified exactly which exhibits were the demonstrative exhibits, and also that the jurors did not have that information with them when they deliberated because it was made available upon request by note. We didn't receive a request during deliberations. And the 404B instruction was given by the court during testimony and during trial. And so while a juror may have said something that conflated those two terms, the question is whether or not the court can even go there and consider 
what the juror may have said or understood under Rule 606B1, um, and the court finds that the exceptions under 2 don't apply here with the record before the court, and I also find that uh, the court can't consider those statements as they fall outside of the exceptions. So to the extent that any representation of what this juror, number 8, may or may not have said, um, even if I considered that potential misunderstanding, I wouldn't find that it would rise to the grounds of allowing for a new trial under any of the exceptions under 192406. So the specific exceptions under 2406, uh, under 2, 5, and 6, which were argued, the court would determine those have not given grounds in the court's discretion for the court to set aside a verdict in this case and allow for a new trial. The other unsighted provisions of 192406, 1, 3, 4, and 7, I also find there's no evidence supporting the granting of a new trial on those grounds either. And so for those reasons, and finally I'll cite, there was a case site of Hall versus State 151, Idaho 42, on this issue of uh, the jurors, and that talks about um, that juror statements are the only way to ascertain what took place in the deliberative process, and it's uh, reiterating that the rule is to make those lines of inquiry pertaining to those issues inherently fruitless, so essentially not allowing parties to go in and try to pry into the minds of what the jurors did when they deliberated. For all those reasons, then, the court's considered thoroughly the motion for a new trial as it relates to those statutory grounds, and I don't find any sufficient evidence has been submitted to the court allowing for a new trial to be granted. For that reason, the court is going to deny the motion, and the court will proceed on July 31st with sentencing in the case. That will be the ruling today, then. Any questions on the court's ruling, Mr. Archibald? No questions, thank you. All right, thank you. Any questions from the state, Ms. Blake? All right, thanks, counsel, for your briefing and arguments today. That will conclude the hearing. We'll be in recess. All right.